Hey there. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to Know and Tell, the podcast for interesting people. I'm your host, Carrie Pulley. Today's guest is speaking from a place of experience and passion, two things that usually go pretty well together. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Alex Graham, a Fort Wayne resident. He's a teacher who is planning to start schools in inner city populations or to serve inner city populations, both in the U.S. and abroad, which is a pretty dope goal if you ask me. He's also one of 10 children. <laughs> oh, that's just such a big number. One of 10 children born to an interracial couple, and that ties in um, pretty solidly to what he's talking about today. So, Alex, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah. yeah really so, first, I definitely want to ask about the schools that you said you're wanting to start. Um, I guess what kicked off that desire to do that, and, I mean, what are plans for that? Yeah, well, I think... Um Education is really going to be uh, the biggest tool into healing um, the racial problems that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they um, have have the power and the resources um, to really make a difference. Um, and, and something that um, really colored my experience as a uh, as a biracial child was my experience within school and the cultural differences that I was able to see and experience, I think, really helped me to come to terms with with where I fit. And so I think as a leader in a school um, with that experience, I just have a wealth of knowledge that can equip specifically young black boys and girls on where they fit into this country and how they can uh, overcome some of the obstacles that they may find themselves facing. Um, and, and also, uh, I spent some time in South Africa hmm. and seeing the education system there and the lack of vision or curriculum that these kids specifically in the poor areas had mm-hmm. really kind of broke my heart. There was just no direction with it. It was as if the system was almost babysitting them mm-hmm. with the expectation that they would never do anything of consequence in the country. And that broke my heart. Because you hear a lot of criticism about the United States education system, mm-hmm. like with um, you know overcrowding and like poor curriculums and stuff. And I absolutely agree with those critiques. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that. But think about the education system in other countries less established countries and it's not education so much as we're going to hold them in here until they are old enough to go work and i mean education really isn't a priority well the the thing that really stood out to me was that that is true of the educators but not of the educated right and so what i mean by that is these kids are passionate and they They want want to to learn. learn so bad they recognize the the direct like causal connection between their education and their future success and there's there's no taking that away from like they want to learn desperately and they go to these places and those places betray them I they can't imagine teach. the desperation that those kids must feel mm-hmm. to, you know, because I think it's it's inherent to really every child. I mean, our whole life is just a learning process. I mean, kids, when they're young, I mean, think about how wide-eyed they are and, mm-hmm. and how much they see this world and think this is the impact I could have on it. And then to be repeatedly failed by the system that's supposed to yeah. not just be like shaping them, but encouraging them to think even beyond the education system. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And in the tragic thing to me is if you look at the history of our country the same thing was happening specifically right after the civil rights movement and before where um, black community leaders were pushing education and were absolutely and completely recognizing the difference that it could make in the black community and that's where we have you know stories like ruby bridges and um, you know um, freddie meredith trying to get into auburn these 
pushes for civil rights um, for the desegregation of schools, right? Because black people are like, our schools aren't good enough, and mm-hmm. we need a change. And how we've gone from that to where we are now is a story that I think needs to be unpacked mm-hmm. because, you know, that's a problem, the way that black communities view education in our country right now. Absolutely. It's a problem. And I want to point out, um, Alex and I actually, you know, we grew up in the same area. We went to the same school. We went to Southside mm-hmm. High School in Fort Wayne. Southside? Yeah, 07. Well, not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, one of the things that I've always thought was remarkable about where we went to school is how incredibly diverse it was and how it encouraged that diversity. Mm-hmm. But if you are looking at Southside from the outside in, we were so often labeled as being underperforming, um, you know, poor quality uh, ghetto schools, what they always called us. And that's because, I mean, African-Americans made up 50% of the school's population. And so it's so sad that, like, the color of, you know, the student's skin creates the external image, and then they internalize that, like you said, within their communities Mm -hmm. into education being something that is either seen as not a valuable resource in their later lives or as something that will weaken them. Well, I I think it goes deeper than that almost. They they see education as non-black. And I think Mm. that that is something that I want to reverse because it's so, it's poisonous. And it gets reinforced when you hear like someone, a highly educated black person being told, oh my God, you talk white. You talk white. This is the story of my childhood. I was was made fun of. I was uh, ostracized for performing in school. And that's Mm. so problematic. It's so problematic. But where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I kind of want to talk about today. Yeah. For sure. So, um, I mean, that was a fantastic intro. That was a <laughs> long intro, and I loved every second of it. So mm-hmm. give us an idea kind of, of you know, what it is that you are bringing to the podcast today, what it is that you're wanting to explore with us. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to be mentioned in my intro is the fact that I am uh, a child of an interracial couple. Mm-hmm. And this is really important for my childhood um, because – as early as second grade, I was getting comments like, why do you act white? Right. So I was forced to think second about grade. second grade. I can remember distinctly where I was and when it happened because I didn't know how to answer that question. Right. Because I was eight and my whole life up to that you point. You were just was acting just as Alex. Exactly. Yeah. I was Alex. What is Alex is white? No, I'm brown. I, I mean, I had conversations with my mom about it. Like, why mm-hmm. are we different colors? And she just you know, answered it in a very like biological straightforward way but we didn't ever talk about the cultural differences between black and white that have been kind of established in this country and so for the first time as an eight eight year old I was forced to think about these things and um, just my identity uh, throughout my childhood kind of walking these uh, boundaries trying to figure out where I fit not fitting with uh, the black communities at my school they thought that I acted white Whereas the white community, I was the token. So it was like, yes. I didn't really feel like I belonged in either group. You become a novelty in the white community. And mm-hmm. it's almost as if like that just furthers the whole stupid commentary of, well, I'm not racist. I have a friend who's black. I but mean, how do you treat that friend who's black? Exactly. Do you treat them <laughs> like they are like this oddity, this prized almost possession of your group that you can claim when, you know, to defend yourself against, mm-hmm. you know, accusations of racism or do you treat them like a person who is just yeah. like you just has a different level of melanin mm-hmm. and there's this otherness that i feel like mm-hmm. i was given by a lot of my black or my white friends not all of them of course right um you know my best friend growing up he said it wasn't until like third grade fourth grade before he, like he realized that i was black and he's like <laughs> i know that sounds weird to say but he's like i just never thought about it like at all and that to me like that warmed my heart of course so i recognize that there is um 
it's not like all white people are looking to objectify my blackness. Like right. that's just not, that's, that's not what's happening, mm-hmm. but it is happening and recognizing that in those white friends and saying, Hey, you know, you know, I'm black, but that's an adjective, not a noun. Like just, just Absolutely. understand, it, understand Absolutely. the difference. Well, and I think, you know, saying that about your best friend, you know, brings up the idea that kids are not born with this, no. No, <laughs> with I'm, this ideology of separation. Of I'm convinced it's taught. It's absolutely taught. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had to learn that lesson early. Right? I, yeah. was, I was taught it before most. Um, and it has to do with being biracial. But what's interesting to me is to think that being biracial is a relatively new thing. And I, I don't say new in that like biracial people didn't exist before it was legal. They did, but it wasn't publicly accepted right. to be a biracial. Right, recognized as like a valid racial identity. In fact, in the origins of our country, in the slave codes that started in like, uh, it started in the Caribbean actually, and then were adopted later in like South Carolina and Virginia, these places with uh, huge labor forces of African slaves, that it was actually illegal um, for black and white people to be together, not just um, through policy, but like, socially Mm -hmm. unaccepted and then they made policies to kind of uh, corroborate that (laughs) social rejection and Mm -hmm. so like you got fined and arrested as a white person if you were um, right reproducing with a black person and then if you're black i mean usually your life was over like they'll kill you absolutely uh and so that for 260 years in the south was really like the way things worked you mm-hmm. didn't it was beyond taboo right for, yeah. for uh, biracial couples to exist now in the north the that story was a, a little bit shorter um and biracial couples started to pop up um in the north just because we were living in proximity with each other mm-hmm. recognizing that we're really just the same <laughs> but you still um, get so many pockets in the north where this idea of white and black is like a stark definition of who is allowed to do what. Oh, absolutely. The I social mean, it, order is still, defined it, by it. We live in Indiana, and I absolutely still see that being the case a lot mm-hmm. of times. I even see it, you know, with like the big example of how the police interact with people. That's a really painfully evident example. But also, you see it in things like healthcare and mental health care, um, where I work. Mental health care. <sighs> absolutely. And well, and that also goes back to the you know societal idea uh, within the black community of mm-hmm. mental health care because if you think about it for so long any complaint that came from a black person was ignored mm-hmm. and if they then turned to their community for help i mean it was considered a weakness because like we all have to be strong we have no yeah. other option no other option that's exactly right and that colored the way that um black people deal with mental health i think that's a great point um so you know just the the social order that was created um, obviously didn't just disappear in the right. north when when things started to or when people started to live together. But there was more of a cultivation of uh, equal humanity right. uh, within the north, which it mutated. It didn't ex- disappear. Yeah, it yeah. didn't just disappear. That's exactly that's a good way to put it. But in the south, for instance, uh, I know a lot of people aren't really aware of this, but the case of Loving versus the state of Virginia was a Supreme Court case that. Um, required all states to allow interracial marriage, right? So up until that point, there were states um, in the South, like Louisiana, Virginia, Georgia, that it was illegal to be married if you're an interracial couple. And that was in 1967. Oh, my God. 
So just to put that into perspective, my parents got married in 1972. Okay, so that's five years later. Now in Indiana, or actually Illinois, where my parents got married, it was legal. Mm-hmm. But the fact that if they, you know, got married seven years earlier mm-hmm. and they decided they wanted to move to Virginia, they would have been asked to leave Virginia or else arrested, which is what happened to the uh, couple. I don't know what their first names were, but the last name was Loving, mm-hmm. right? That, that then appealed this case up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And like that's that's insane to me to think that within five years of my parents' marri- marriage, it wasn't across the board legal for interracial marriage right. in our country. And so when I think about that, like that's – how many couples would have? How many biracial couples would have existed in the South had it not been for that law? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the children of those biracial couples, um, who would have then been forced to think about race differently in the South and maybe challenge the racial notions in the South yeah. that didn't exist because that rule was in place. Instead, so they grew up with like a sense of shame and rejection. Yeah, and I mean their parents not being able to assure them otherwise because. You can't tell a kid everything's going to be okay when they walk outside and the law itself is telling them that they shouldn't exist. Yeah, the law and the society. Right? Yeah. So, so that, that, that's another thing that I wanted to talk about today mm-hmm. is a recognition that laws don't necessarily reflect society's oh, behavior. Oh, absolutely not. And so I think we have this ideology when we look back at history that um, when a law changes, the society changes with it. And I think that that's kind of a little bit disillusioned. And needs to be unpacked a little bit more than that. Because, mm-hmm. for instance, in you know Indiana, it is actually you can receive a fine for jaywalking. Does that law actually change people's behavior? No. No, because it's not enforced. And so, to me, it's not enforced by the society. Mm-hmm. We don't actually value that rule. No. Right? So, if we think about rules like, um, you know, the integration of schools in the South, when they first were put into place when when the supreme court was mandating that schools integrate that law was not accepted mm-hmm. at first in the south to the point where the national guard had to be brought into the south yeah. to to make these government like not just like the people but like the governor of alabama was like no we're not letting this happen and we think, won't let black people go to school with white people i think one of the things that also brings up is like whenever people um will like defend the the oppression of a people because it's like oh well that's not legal and then it gets changed and they're like well i'm not going to recognize it you realize it was <laughs> never an issue of legality or respecting that's the right. law of the land that's it right. was always an issue of your own personal biases and when they're being reinforced by the law yeah of course you feel unstoppable because yeah. the law is telling you no, no no it's okay you can do this and then when that gets changed that's when like you see these groups of people getting really upset and saying now we're being oppressed yeah. you're not being oppressed because someone else is not being oppressed like, yeah, like it doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah that's an interesting point and i i think that there is this um resistance to the status quo changing in mm-hmm. our country um and because it's always been this way it's always been this way mm-hmm. and so um I was going to try to keep politi- politics out of, out of my <laughs> conversation, but that, that it's always just bothered me, this uh, Make America Great Again slogan, because I'm like, well, well, what, are we, what are we talking about? Yeah, what's your point of reference on that? Yeah, because cause, uh, if, we're, if we're looking at the experience of, of e- not just the like, minority population of our country, but the poor population Absolutely. of our country, like, when was our country great? Now, it's greater than other countries, but at the same time, I, I don't think that we want to look to make it great again. I think we want to look to make it great. Yeah. And 
this this kind of like appeal to a past greatness mm-hmm. to me is is problematic because I think we should always be looking forward as a country, and and so I just I just feel like it should just be MG, make America great, <laughs> 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 and then we should just stop it there, and that's what we should be thinking about. I don't think there's anything any pro- progressions that our country has made that were yeah. detrimental like to I th- our country. I think the, um, you know, you put it like what reference point are we using? And, and the idea of like reminiscing about a time when America was great, that reminiscing, that's rooted in fear and hatred and ugliness. Yeah. And that, you know, not only that someone could build an entire presidential campaign and win with that mindset, yeah. but that so many people are like, yeah, this is an idea I agree with. What, at what point was the nation as a whole able to say, you know what, we are all doing great? No, it was an exclusive greatness, yeah. and there was a, there was the ex- exclusivity of that greatness was racially based. Mm-hmm. I mean, racially and kind of uh, sexually, right? So, like, mm-hmm. it was male white males that have ex- enjoyed the greatness of our country mm-hmm. over the course of its history, and so like. I kind of, I kind of want a piece of the pie. If so. I were a white hetero <laughs> male, like I would be on cloud nine right now. But and that's not to say that they're they're bad. Like, and no. I think that that that's a dangerous slope too. Is if we yeah. start to say, well, you know, I want a piece of the pie, and everybody who has pie is bad, is is kind of a faulty way of thinking right. of it. But also, I think it does really need to be acknowledged that like a lot of the people that have a piece of the pie don't necessarily realize that other people are starving. Yeah, no. that and that's. That's why the awareness needs to be um, cultivated is because it's like, um, yeah, I'm hungry and you got enough to feed me. I would appreciate a piece every now and again. So <laughs> the, this loving versus the state of Virginia, uh, going back to the, the interracial marriage, mm-hmm. I think that is, uh, is an example of something recently that has changed and the culture probably shifted to base to, to kind of um, – to meet this law, mm-hmm. but it wasn't just like the law happened and then society was like, oh, it's it's legal now, so I guess we have to accept right. it. Right, legality and acceptance are not the same. Yeah, so, so you know, these black couples, black and white couples, were still being persecuted mm-hmm. when they got together after it was it was legal. Yeah. And and that I have, you know, anecdotal evidence in my parents' <laughs> in my parents' experience because even in a, a state in which it was legal for, for years, my parents were absolutely persecuted because of being biracial and um some of the stories i don't even want to repeat because right. th- they're they're that just dehumanizing to my, towards my father or towards my mother um you know going to the going to the grocery store and like being told that she was like an abomination because she had black babies mm-hmm. like that's real that, that happened to my mother and to my siblings. I think it's really easy to um, kind of put this filter of fantasy looking at the civil rights movement. If, yeah. if, but for you, I mean, it wasn't just the civil rights movement. It was the reason I have a family, you know, and knowing that your parents face the kind of subjugation that we read about in textbooks must mm-hmm. have been such a powerful and I would say like at times probably crushing experience for you. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. The stuff that other people read about in textbook, textbooks, my mom was telling me. It was part of your firsthand. family history. That's my parents. That's yeah. not like my great-great-grandfather who was a slave. No, mm-hmm. that was my dad who couldn't get a loan in Fort Wayne for a house 
because he was black. So <laughs> I can say this because there's there's an untold story within our country mm-hmm. of, of racial segregation when it comes to housing. Yeah. And so there was laws around it for years and years and years. Those laws disappeared. But like I was saying, that didn't necessarily mean that realtors were then following yeah. those those expectations. Well, and the patterns and the effects of it, I mean, they still remain. They still remain. And so there so was you, have, you definitely have some insight into like kind of the, the racial um, – disparity in housing so what can you tell us about that yeah so i read this book by a man named richard garfield and i would strongly suggest or richard rothstein sorry um rothstein and it's it's it was absolutely eye-opening to me um and is part of why i want to move into education because i think that changing the housing situation in our country can absolutely revolutionize the way that race is is portrayed and um the way that people view each other because mm-hmm. I think that we're not actually living in communities with each other. It's kind no. of like this faux integration and it's just, it's not real life integration. We're not actually living next to each right. other. There's sub communities the that like the edges might touch each other, but they sure do they not. They sure blend. do not blend. And yeah. you can see that um, across the entire country in mm-hmm. every major metropolitan area. There is what would be defined as a ghetto. Yes. And so what does ghetto mean? Well, ghetto gets its roots in world war one and two mm-hmm. when Nazi Germany segregated its country its country and put all the Jewish people into the same area. And let's be clear, the reason why they were being put in that area was because their particular race was viewed as undesirable or um, not contributing to society, even though of course that they was were. incorrect. <laughs> and so to yeah. take that word now, like I, I would hate when people would call our high school ghetto. Drives it's not ghetto. Nuts. It's it's diverse. It's black. You're right. I did go to a majority black high school, and mm-hmm. in no way was my education lessened. In fact, I think it made it even stronger because I'm getting all of these outside viewpoints in places where had I gone to somewhere up north. Mm-hmm. I absolutely would not have been able to gain this experience. Well, your experience of black people then becomes the experience that's portrayed on the news and yeah. in the movies and in pop cultures. And let me tell you, mm-hmm. as a black male, I'm ashamed a lot of the times of the way that black people are portrayed throughout our yep. um, country's uh, popular culture. It's mm-hmm. just, just not accurate. It's just not accurate. It's disingenuous, and, I, and I, I'm bothered by it. But So this, this term ghetto comes from th- these roots that we talked about a little bit, and it gets kind of... Um, conflated with with our ghettos over here so our ghettos weren't the exact same as those ghettos and that they didn't literally hurt people and put them in there mm-hmm. but but they did in a in a very um kind of insidious way hurt black people into certain parts of the country mm-hmm. and they did this through redlining which is denying loans and property um to to black people and before that they did it through literal like this is a black person's um like there was segregation right. even in like new york city so the new york city housing um, right now we think of, uh, public housing as being like kind of a black thing <laughs> or mm-hmm. like a poor black, like that's where black people live is in the housing, uh, units in like New York city. But originally there was, um, a white housing and a black housing. Like they were literally segregated. This mm-hmm. is in the early 1900s. And cause you're thinking about like the early, sh- the, the early immigrant populations. Yeah. Um, of course, I mean, we're all from immigrants, but, you know, besides that, you're talking about, like, the early Irish and the Italians, and, like, I mean, you hear about, like, these basically origin-specific neighborhoods. You got the Italian neighborhood, you got the Irish neighborhood, you got all that stuff, and poverty at that point, in that way, was a unifier. Yeah. 
obviously it didn't flatten the playing field, but I mean, it did allow some commonalities to occur. For sure, for sure. The Irish and the blacks specifically, a lot of times uh, in our country's history, would revolt together mm-hmm. or would uh, rise up against the um, elitist populations in country or er, in cities. But in, in New York, the crazy thing is, this is and this to me was, again, eye-opening, is that when they started, they were segregated. But eventually, they became all black because the the white housing, government housing, was em- after like 10 years, was empty. And the black housing had a waiting line. And you think, oh, well, it's because the white wow. people worked harder. No, it's because the government was subsidizing um, the property that was bought by the, the people and the white people in those housing units right so they were saying we'll subsidize your loan and t- uh, give you this property in the suburbs Ugh. okay and so these white people were like yeah deal we'll take it and they were moving out buying this property mm-hmm. um, at a discounted rate well the black people were not allowed those loans at all mm-hmm. and so even the black people that could afford houses all the houses were being bought by white people because they were, weren't allowed to buy houses in certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so they were forced into a situation, both economically and legally, into the same spot. I also so you had the, the black people making money and the black people not making money forced into the same living situation. I also think about how you know you were saying how they were um, uh, they were basically being herded by these policies and these regulations and everything. And also I think they were being you know herded into these areas by what resources were willing to serve them. I yeah, mean, if yeah. you try to go, you know, apply for financial assistance from a place and they're like, nope, whites only, I mean, and then you find a place that will serve blacks, which place are you going to live closer to? Exactly. That place. And so, of course, you're going to congregate around the places that are able to serve you. But, I mean, that's how you get, like, just these pockets, these neighborhoods mm-hmm. where, you know, the outsiders will say, oh, God, don't go, don't drive down, you know, we have so many roads like that. Don't drive yeah. down Pontiac, Pontiac after Street. dark. Yeah. Woo, Pontiac. And the thing is, like, even though it's I was, scary. <laughs> even <laughs> though like I was raised, I mean, with my parents really fervently saying, like, you know, if you, I mean, racism is horrifying. We're gonna make sure that you're growing up in an integrated neighborhood, going to these schools and everything. I mean, even someone with my background, I still like would get nervous driving down Pontiac, mm-hmm. and if I'm feeling that way. And I'm able to kind of squash it and feel guilty about it. Yeah. Imagine the people who have no guilt and shame about it. And then all of it just keeps reinforcing each other. Yeah. So this housing segregation reinforces racial um, bias. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the story of our country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's it's racism that has been encouraged by the, the separation or er, eh, encouraged and then bred. So mm-hmm. like if we're separate from each other, we are afraid of each other. And that's both sides. And that's another thing that I wanted to talk about today is that I don't think that there is simply um, a bias of white people towards black people and black communities. But I think the opposite is also true. And that's an experience as as being biracial that I that I feel um, very much in tune with because I was ostracized, like I said, by the black community because of my otherness. And so there is this also identifying of something that they don't like or don't want to be a part of when Mm -hmm. it comes to um, black people viewing white communities and that's why i think housing segregation is where racism needs to be attacked in this country because the housing segregation continued all the way into the 60s and i have the again the anecdotal evidence to support this uh, historical claim which is that my dad when he moved from chicago um, from inner city chicago where he met my mother 
um, back to Fort Wayne where my mother's family was from. He had the finances, but we couldn't get a loan. He kept meeting with realtors um, and they would just give him the cold shoulder essentially. And, and put this in perspective year-wise, like around what year was this? Yeah, so uh, my parents got married in 92. Uh, or 72, right? 72, yeah, sorry. <laughs> 72, and then they moved to Fort Wayne, um, I think when my, after my brother was born. So this is in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, so this was, I mean, when, this was basically eight years before I was born. Yeah, this so is not a long time ago. No, not at all. <laughs> and so my, two of my siblings, two of my 10 siblings were born at this point. And so they're trying to find a house for, for them to live in. And it's just so crazy. Every time I think about it, I'm just like, this is insane. So, so my dad couldn't get a loan. He was going with my mom to these appointments with realtors, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one day he was working. He was busy, so he couldn't go. So my mom asked her brother, uh, her brother David, who was white, right, to go with her on one of these uh, trips. And she's, she's actually pregnant at the time with mm-hmm. the third child. So they're going um, around, and they, they, the realtor shows them this house. And the whole time, the realtor thinks that my uncle is my mom's husband oh i bet that changed his attitude And so she said that the way that this is the same realtor by the way that ray or not the same realtor the same company though Mm -hmm. the same they just like met with a different realtor this time Mm -hmm. right uh so it's the same realtor company and so she is treated incredibly differently they are treated i should say um and eventually they kind of like close and they go to like later they sign up a time for my mom to come and sign um and like get everything rolling with with the purchasing of the house and my dad comes to that instead and she, she said when they walked into that room the realtor's face changed and it, it's, he didn't even he didn't even hide it at all his face betrayed him oh it turned God. beet red and he was incredibly angry and the whole time did not say anything except for what he was required to say for them to fill out the paperwork and, then, and I bet and inside his head, he was furious. He's like, they tricked me. They tricked me, right? Oh, my gosh. And, and, and on top of that, it's, it just goes to show, like, he was – how many couples did he do that to? Yeah. You know, like, how many people who had the money and had the situation that they needed to buy this house but mm-hmm. were denied a loan or denied And if the mentality is, oh, they tricked me to do this, well, I mean, doesn't that in itself point out what the problem is? If someone – if and they, obviously they weren't trying to, but if someone had to use deception to get the same service that you give to everyone else, yeah. maybe the problem is you. Right, right. And so that – like, the way that – thinking about how that would have changed my parents' future yeah. is unbelievable because they were able to get a house, right? Uh, this is This is property. This is sustainable wealth. Mm-hmm. This is – uh, an investment that they were able to make. And then future in the future, they sold that house and invested in a new house with six bedrooms that my family grew up in, that I was born in, mm-hmm. right? That wouldn't have been a reality had that not happened. Yeah. It's like this, this moment, this serendipitous moment, really, like it was not the intention that they had, right. but the result forever changed their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's 20 or 30 years ago now, almost 40 years ago, I guess. Yeah. But still, I mean, which blows my mind, but (laughs) I know, (laughs) no, I, I, I think that it's so important for us to, um, 
give voice to perspectives like yours mm-hmm. because it would be so easy for us to say, oh, the civil rights happened and we're all good now and yeah. la, la, la. And, you know, black people bring this on themselves by, you know, not cooperating with police and all that jazz. No. They don't own any property. Exactly. <laughs> How are they supposed to own property when the system is specifically built to make sure that they stay down and that we can continue blaming them for their own poverty? Okay. It's horrifying. So then there's a realization that I come to after continuing to read Rothstein's um, Color of Law, which was just a chronicling of the, the actual policies of, uh, yeah, the actual policies that involved the segregation. So he, um, he, he laid it out for me, and then I started to think about how it interacted with my own life. Mm-hmm. And I think about my parents got this loan, and then we were able to sustain this property, and that forever changed my life. And because of that, I was in a different community. Right? Mm-hmm. I was in a community with white neighbors. Yeah. So I grew up with white friends as well as a, like a white mother and um, the my mom's side of the family being here in Fort Wayne, whereas my dad's side being in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So culturally identified as white, and it changed my whole entire life. But not only that, like I said, my, my best friend has a black best friend now, whereas yeah. before he probably wouldn't have. No. Right. And so that changed his life and his view of race. Mm -hmm. And so to me, this community that we build together when we actually live next to each other Mm -hmm. can is is a powerful tool in defeating racism and changing, changing our cultures to be more ready to cohabitate with each other. Absolutely. And so I was thinking about, okay, well, what's going on in these black communities that can change? And part of it is almost in specifically in Fort Wayne. If you go into the southeast side of our country. You see rental after rental yes. after rental after rental property. So so black families are not owning homes. But there are, I, I know for a fact that there are black families in this city who have the money to own a house. Mm-hmm. But never in the history of their families, either the father the father or the mother, has the house been owned. Right. right? All they know is There's renting. no precedent There's for it. No, so like why they don't even know where to go to get a mortgage. Yeah. Because owning a house isn't even on their radar. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is something that has to change. Mm-hmm. Because sustainable wealth is, is going to be a way that we defeat this ghetto, like, <laughs> the, the conflation of poor and black in our country. And mm-hmm. by conflation, I mean we've, like, mapped poor onto black people. Absolutely. Like, black people are just, by nature, poor. Yeah, but that's just not. That's and you just know not that's true because, like, when you meet a highly educated black person, you're surprised. You're like, "Oh wow! Like, I didn't expect that a from you. Like, why not? Has money. Why not? It's because a historical whole, thing. Yeah, because our whole lives and the lives of the, you know the the generations before us have been taught that you know the darker your skin, the less value you have, and you're doing this to yourself, and you're poor. But here's no opportunities. Like, it's just something that has been ingrained into our culture and i think that you i mean you bring up great points that housing you know literally we need to start at home (laughs) we have to start at home we have to start at home and so my one of the things that i want to look to do in these schools that i'm making is is do after school classes that are encouraging these black families to pool their money together and buy houses in neighborhoods to increase this property value because uh our education systems i don't know if you know this but our education systems are funded by um, property tax, mm-hmm. right? And so these uh, 
schools across our country are not getting the proper funding they need because the property value is so low in these black yeah. communities. So it's literally affecting the education system of, <sighs> of our black communities that the property value is so low. So if we can get these houses um, to be bought and so this, these investments to be made and this money to be cultivated within mm-hmm. our black communities, it will change everything. And that's one of my, my visions for our country is t- taking the education system and using it as a tool to equip black people to have sustainable wealth that will change the way that the country looks at black communities. I think that that will, again, revolutionize the way that we think of race in our country. I think that's remarkable. And Alex, uh, as we're closing out, how old are you? I'm 25. He is a 25-year-old man who is developing these plans that you know, with the aim to change the future of this country. Mm-hmm. And so if we are to say that our generation is the one that's going to make the difference, we need people like Alex to be encouraged and motivated and supported in what they're doing. Because, I mean, like he said, it's, it was serendipity that his family got the opportunity of housing, which led to him having this passion and this pursuit and also the opportunities to pursue that. That's right. The opportunities. That's key. Yeah. Opportunities are key. And so I, I think that your perspective is one that needs to be heard more often, um, and needs to be publicized as, you know, a pretty common black experience Mm -hmm. or even, you know, biracial experience. So I'm really excited that we were able to, you know, have a platform for that today. Yeah, me too. That's awesome. Ah, so thank you so much for, for sharing those things with us and um, definitely let me know any updates like uh, as far as like program developments for you mm-hmm. or any projects or any way that maybe the community can help fund some of these missions that you're on. Mm-hmm. Can I say one last thing? Absolutely. Um, I encourage uh, those of you who are um, white listening to this, uh, to this podcast to recognize when you think of the black community as other and try to defeat that thought in your mind. Because it's not they, it's us. And yes. I think we need to start thinking uh, in, in um, terms of togetherness as far instead of terms of separateness. So if you're thinking of the black community as the black community mm-hmm. and not the American people, recognize that there's kind of that, that historical s- separation has found its way into the way that you think. And so try to defeat that thought process mm-hmm. and recognize that. America includes the black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Ghettos are not a third world country. No, no, they are not. Um, yeah, change begins with awareness of what needs to change. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really great point. That's a great point to end on, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Alex Graham, uh, educator, world changer, and uh, part of the future of hopefully a better nation. Without oh, Make America great. <laughs> Period. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, guys, um, I'm so excited that you went on this journey with us. And, you know, future episodes, always be ready for uh, new perspectives, new passions, new interests to be explored. And always remember that what makes you interesting is the fact that you have interests. And don't ever let anybody tell you differently. So for the uh, ever wonderful No Intel podcast, I am your host, Carrie Pulley. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week.